0: Listening to the Audio Nowcast, sponsored by API and Wire World Pro
1: Audio. Now from the Nowcast Network Studios, here's Mike. Hey,
2: welcome to the Audio Nowcast. My name is Mike Rodriguez. And before we get going, let me introduce everyone. Joining us from his wonderful little lair, Mister Nick
1: Peck. Hello, Mike. Hey, Rob. Hey, Brandon. It's wonderful to see you all again. Hope you guys are having a relatively happy Thursday.
2: And right next to him, we've got Mr. Brandon Birdside.
3: Hello, guys. Good to see everybody.
2: Good to see you, Brandon. And finally joining us, this is show 203, the one and only Iron Man of the Audio Nowcast, Mr. Rob Arbiter.
0: Hello, Mike. Hello, Nick. Hello, Brandon. Hello, everyone.
2: Hey Rob, just so you know, I actually watched Iron Man again like the night before last, and I was thinking about you. I'm thinking, (laughs) I'm thinking Rob could do it. Rob could do all that. Oh yeah, is and I don't know that you don't have a jet suit somewhere, Rob. So (laughs) that's all I'm saying. Did it be getting rusty because I haven't left the house in like three months? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is week seven. Uh, Well, actually, we're going into week seven, which is just incredible. but uh, yeah. Hey, but you know, first of all, we're going to, we're going to start the podcast on a, on a, a gentler tone and uh, a little bit more somber um, because uh, I have to talk about a few things. Um, number one, a really good friend of mine and a friend of Rob's um, passed away last week and that was Danny Leak. And he was the front of house engineer for, for Stevie Wonder for like 30 years, you know? I mean, I haven't, I haven't, been with stevie for you know like two decades and he was still mixing and i remember when he was with him before i started with stevie so it's it has been a while and um
0: super nice guy
2: yeah he was he was just he was such a great guy and and the thing about like when you tour you become like a family really quick because you're going to see these people all the time like Every day, you're going to see them for hours and hours, especially on the crew. You may not see the band, per se, because they'll come in later. But the crew, we get there in the morning, and we do all our stuff. We do the load-in, and then you, you do your setup. And then there's a lot of downtime, so you end up hanging out with them. You end up eating with them a lot and just spending a lot of time. And the thing I noticed about – the one thing I know like about Danny – Um, is he was very generous with his time with me i could go up to the front of house and i can ask him questions and i can ask him about his gear and stuff like that and he never ever like you know he always had time for my questions you know and and it was he helped me a lot to understand what was going on in the front of house and he was just he was just a really good guy and it's it's just was really sad that that he passed away i don't know rob do you have any any thoughts on danny that you want to say
0: yeah, I mean, he, he was a super nice guy. And actually, the list of places we haven't been together on Earth is probably shorter than the list of places we have been. <laughs> That's been probably true. Everywhere together. Um, I... And I was just going to say, and he and did not pass away from the coronavirus. He had, no. had other, other health problems, and he had gotten better, and we were all so happy he was doing so much better, and this really came as a surprise. But yeah, he was he had the perfect temperament to be Stevie's front of house engineer because He wouldn't stress out. Oh yeah. Anybody who's ever been successful with Stevie for any length of time has learned how to manage stress because that is absolutely the biggest part of the job. And nothing fazed him. He was just a really
2: chilled out, nice guy. And working with an act like Stevie Wonder is not easy because Stevie plays in some of the weirdest places ever. I mean, we play in, and you know, you do. Uh, corporate gigs where you're you're playing at the end of an airport. Then you do um, you do uh, pop up shows. That I remember we were in Israel. Remember when we were in Israel? We, did you go to that show in no. Israel? Uh, we played right outside, right outside the the old city, and they created this amphitheater there, or where they have these festivals that they create. And it was just boomy, and it was hot. It was so hot, you know. And he's over there, you know, just having to deal with. A totally different sound setup than you know what he was having to do when he does the indoor venues and when he does you know some of the other stuff. And this was before a lot of that stuff was uh, recallable. You know, this is back in the day where you you had to mix. You know, so he uh, he definitely had some challenges. He definitely- I remember
0: one place we played in Germany, and actually talk about hot. How about Brunei? That was like thousand oh. <laughs> <1, 000 laughs> degrees and a thousand percent humidity. Um, but. I remember we played one place in Germany. It was either Germany or Holland. I think it was Germany. It was the livest place we had ever played. It was like a giant rectangular box with no absorption. It was just like hard walls and ceilings and everything just parallel. And I'm sure the ring out from the end of that show is still ringing. Like it was probably 25 years (laughs) ago. But he just sucked it up and made it work as well as it could work. I mean, uh, I never, I'm trying to think if I ever saw him get like, freaked out
2: or stressed out or anything I don't think so I saw him get he I saw him once I when he was when, he was when he was slightly displeased <laughs> but never ever angry you know and it was I think it was a riser issue you know which is pretty important when you're mixing the show oh yeah so, just, but yeah I just I had to I just wanted to at least bad news yeah, it was really sad news and and he was a really, you know, my thoughts go out to his family and and his friends and and even Stevie and uh yeah, it's 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 different. And Stevie, you know, if you think about it, now he has, you know, you you find another front house mixer that's, you know, that knows your show and and that's not an easy thing to do to find that kind of of uh experience, you know, and not experience mixing, but you know You, you get to know an act, you get to know a show that it's second nature to do whatever you're doing. You know, it's just, oh yeah. And
0: the TV show is so unpredictable. I mean, you have to have somebody who's basically reading his mind
2: all the time. Oh yeah. I mean, if he ever decides at a whim, which you know, he does to go into any of the little Stevie wonder stuff and you have to like do the pitch shifting for like fingertips and stuff like that. That's just, you know, that's, that's stuff that, that gets done on the fly a lot of times, you know, cause you know, Stevie's set list is merely a suggestion. It's never locked in stone, you know? So it's, it's, it's just really sad. And he had to mention that. And then I also had to mention um, Dave Stewart, who was the studio manager for British Grove studios in, uh, in London, he passed away from the coronavirus, And that's, it's just really, that's, man, that was a gut punch when I, when I found out about that, because we shot an episode at British Grove, which is coming out um, in this next round. And he was the nicest guy and he set it all up and we got to go in and, and truly I got to have some of my uh, most awesome once in a lifetime audio experiences there because of him, you know, it, they allowed me to touch the red board that they have there. That's all working. And, and then they, uh, I listened to uh, the five one mix of money for nothing in their main control room. You know, it's, it was just all this, really cool stuff that, and, uh, he, he was just really professional, really nice. And I just, my heart goes out to that whole place, you know, and it's just crazy. Mike, yeah,
1: I want to, con- I want to confirm that is not either the Dave Stewart of the Eurythmics no, it's, or the Dave Stewart. That's a progressive rock keyboard player either.
2: No, it's the Dave Stewart. Who's the studio manager of, of British Grove studios. Yeah. And, um, that, that, that's really unfortunate and really, really kind of bummed me out. I will say this
0: does point out to Stuart families around the world, you can stop naming your kids Dave. It gets oh. uh,
2: very confusing. Oh, leave <laughs> to you, Rob. Say it. But uh, yeah, but he was a really nice guy. And, and so I look forward to actually when we do the, uh, the England episode, the See, London yeah. episode. Um, yeah. he's not in it, but I'm just gonna dedicate that show because it was a. It, it took a couple of years to actually shoot that. We went there three times, and it was. It's you know, it started with with him basically. That was the first studio we wanted to go to was British Grove, because um, Mark Knopfler. We saw Mark Knopfler's personal API console that he uses to do all his stuff, and they really like it was really great. They let us see stuff. They let us. He was recording his some acoustic guitar, and we couldn't film it, so I didn't film it because I absolutely you know, I. whatever they tell me to but they showed his mic setup they showed us what how he mics up his guitar and it was pretty it was pretty interesting the way he did it and and uh it was just was really great they just basically gave us all access you know so it's really cool and then and then we'll talk more about this later but we of course we can't um not mention um florian schneider who passed away and uh you know, he was a founding member of of Craftwork up until like I think like two thousand and eight or something like that, where where he stopped. Um, but I mean, Craftwork literally changed a lot of music and changed the course of music and opened things up, and is responsible for so much. And we're going to talk about that a little later. But um, it's he was talking about a giant amongst uh, musicians and and how important Craftwork, even if he didn't like Craftwork, like. You know who Kraftwerk is and was, and you you you've heard their songs and Audubon, and there's just so much. Like they are so influential in uh, even in today's music, you can still feel a lot of their influence. Actually, you can feel their influence more with a lot of the um, Eurorack stuff and the modular stuff, and a lot of the yeah. stuff that's coming back in fashion. Right, right, Nick. I mean, that's kind of
1: absolutely yes. And funnily enough, although this is this is uh, a little bit of a tangent. Croftwork worked with Dieter Depfer, the inventor of Eurorack. Before Eurorack happened, he created like a combination MIDI analog synthesizer for them, and he was working on creative, working on creating alternative gesture controllers for them. And um, I think that he made a hand percussion system for them as well. So uh, they were very much part of, uh, you know. Yeah, so they're they were very focused on technology, and you know we'll talk about it a little later. But yeah, the yeah. actual technology itself has absolutely resonated through to till today. There's no question.
2: Yeah, so so my my heart goes out to all those the family and friends of of those gentlemen, and uh, wow, it's just it's incredible, you know. And and then actually when you hear stories like that and you hear stories about Dave and, and the virus, it just you know this thing's real and it's serious people so just just take it i'm not going to get caught up in the politics of it but just know that it's real and it's very serious so stay stay safe and stay healthy hey i'm going to i'm going to pivot right here now we're going to change a little bit and i want to talk to you guys about something that i got into and i don't know how many of you guys have have ever messed around with this but um you know having some time the 13 minutes i have a day <laughs> I I started going back into some of my old gear that I I wanted to like, oh, I got to get back into this. And so I um, got out and started messing around with these lovely, this lovely uh, set of headphones. And I don't know if you guys ever seen these, but these are from Sennheiser. And let me just show you. These are their ambisonic, um, they're the Ambio headsets. So they have an ambisonic microphone in there. And how many, have you guys ever messed around with any of the ambisonic stuff, any of the recording or anything like that? It's, it's the most incredible, like, to, to record and to hear it back on these headphones because it's so perfectly matched. It literally recreates your environment orally um, in such a scary, real way. Like, it's crazy. I, I'll give you an example. I was <laughs> worried of, and the phone rang. And then uh, I uh, and I was still recording, and I went over, and I, I got the phone, and I was laying back down, and then I, I hit play, and so the phone was static, it wasn't moving, so it, I thought, so the picture never changed on me, so then I, when I hit play, so I'm trying it out, the phone rings again, I thought it was the phone ringing again, but it was just playing back, and it matched everything it matched the the spatialization of the audio the reverb everything it sounded exactly like what i had just heard it was the craziest thing in the, like i was like wow this is really really crazy so i started putting together a, a little system and and i think what i'm going to do is uh as i'm looking i'm i'm looking for see if there's a better version of this but right now bang for the buck this is pretty good because these are only like 200 bucks and they work so well um and back in the day when i was doing some testing like i went to the long beach grand prix and i recorded cars going by and to hear it on the on the headphones it's like you're there again so yeah. i was thinking you know what i might do and i'm trying to put this together is i think i might put together for spaces i think i might put together a little amb- ambisonic recording system because can you imagine going into uh these studios that we go into and if you have headphones on you can actually hear what the control room sounds like because you know spaces don't sound the same you know they they're definitely different like you know all our spaces that we have right here each one of them sounds different and and to be able to recreate to recreate that would be pretty incredible um to match video, the only thing is you have to play back on on earbuds. Hold on one second, uh, Scott's coming, joining us. He's coming. I can hear him, and I can I can see his name. Scott. Scott hello <laughs> hey scott we were just talking about um ambisonic audio i was just showing the guys that i picked up these these that sennheiser ambio headset a oh while yes. yeah yeah yeah
4: and Absolutely. um
2: and i'm messing with them and uh how real it it records in the playback and then one idea that i have that i think i'm gonna do is i'm gonna put together a small little rig so I can do some spaces stuff, but actually go into the studio and you can hear what the control room sounds like. And more importantly, if you go into like uh, Blackbird, which has a variable uh, room reverb room where you can raise and lower the reverb, you'll be able to actually hear the reverb tails in some of these places. So I just think it's it, there's there's so much, um, so much cool stuff that you can do. Um, but I wanted to open it up to you guys in the Ambisonic recording and anything like that. And let me ask you. Do you think it's going to catch on bigger than it is now? Because there is definitely a, a small segment that has Ambisonic that that does these recordings, but it's not really huge. And I don't know, do you guys, what do you think? Do you think it's going to catch on? Or do you think it's, is, does it demand too much of the listener being that you have to have headphones to really take advantage of the whole thing, but people have headphones anyhow. So I don't know. On earbuds all the time. Now, I think it's just a
0: hundred percent to do with the content. I don't think you'll get an audience super excited about a technology because they don't care about that. They sort of feel like they've seen and heard everything. Yeah. So it's about the content, if you had some really hot new artist doing stuff that somehow compelled their audience to get into ambisonics, then the audience would follow. But it's kind of like 3D TV, unless there's some specific content that makes it worth the extra, extra technical challenge. I mean, remember, people are willing to listen to crappy
2: That's low, true.
0: E3s. So it's all about the, the content itself.
2: I mean, I think if I was recording, if I had a choice between using like the Sennheisers or or doing just your iPhone, I mean, the Sennheiser plugs into your iPhone. That's the crazy thing is, is it's, it's all dependent on your iPhone. There's the lightning connection right there. Mm-hmm. So you can record on your iPhone. You get a much better mix and a much better, just sounds better, just gives you more space. I think you're right. The content is thing, but... But if you think about podcasts right now, I don't know how many guys, do you guys listen to podcasts? There's some podcasts that are coming up that are like old time radio shows. They like some of the crime stuff where they reenact some of the crime scenes and things like that. I mean, it's, it's incredible what audio is doing. I'm just kind of waiting for it to go over these little micro slivers that kind of gain momentum to like come back in a bigger way.
1: I agree. I agree with Rob. I think that that's about the content. It's wonderful that they're doing like old time radio plays, but it, what's compelling about it is not what it sounds like as much as, you know, the, the, as, as much as what it is that they're doing, the aesthetic behind it, you know, and, and, uh, that aspect of it. Sorry, Scott, were you going to say something?
4: No, that's okay. I'll, I'll let you guys finish. Or I'm finished. I got <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I have actually quite a bit of experience in this world. Uh, I spent the last almost three years at Technicolor, uh, dealing with just this. So ambisonic, um, I'll give you the quickie version, okay. Uh, there's first order, second order, third order, etc. Cetera, et cetera for ambies. so in stereo, there's something. Okay, in panning, there's something called a smear rate, and that is if you close your eyes, can you hear panning? So in stereo, little nuances you can hear them pan. Okay, so first order. So the smear rate in stereo is about three percent. Okay, first order ambi it's like 40%. So that means you can have two people here and here, and you can't tell the difference. It's very low res. Second order AMBI, so a first order is four tracks. Second order is eight tracks. Second order gets a smear rate of about 12, 15. And then third order, which is 16 tracks, 16 capsules, has a smear rate similar to stereo, about two to three percent. So to do ambisonic in a very convincing way and to have the detail that you're used to hearing in stereo, you need to go to third order.
2: But wait, hold on, hold on one second. But with yeah. these these little guys, I get massive panning.
4: I, I right. get Okay, so I, then I, the, then there's something called HRTF or binaural. It's yes, not ambisonic, This binaural. Right. So binaural you're right. is basically rebuilding. So ambisonic's is a very old technology. It's not even something new. And they reinvented it or they re-figured it out, but it's been around a long time. Uh, binaural is basically the way you hear it. Two capsules, being able to hear 3D information using phase relationships. The only problem is both in ambi and in binaural, there's something called head-related transfer function. HRTF, and everybody's head and ears hear differently. So when they model what it sounds like to do 3D acoustics and all of that, they need to hear the exact model of your head physically, ear canals, shape of head, um, all of that. So what happens is, and this is because I was doing heavy VR, is that you'll hear one person will go, oh my God, it's all the way around me. This is an amazing uh, uh, demonstration and other people go can't hear anything i just don't hear it huh so what's happened is there are a couple companies out there that are making custom models of your head so then cuz if you look at harpex as a plugin that does sort of an hrtf plugin it has probably 25 30 models and you kind of got to pick one the whole point is you want to be able to make it where it's customizable to your personal head and the other way to do that is so I was talking to Facebook and Dolby and Google about working out ways of scanning people's heads, so they can get a, a true 3D audio and hear all of that kinds of stuff. I think the technology is around. Um, the problem is the I, I was actually one of the people. Um, I got you know an Abby mic from uh, uh, Sennheiser and yada yada yada. So um, it then comes down to just because the Sabersonic mic like any mic doesn't mean it's a good mic. Right. So I, I said, great, can you give me your Sennheiser 8040s capsules in an ambisonic situation, second or third order? And they laughed at me and said, that'd be great, but it'd be crazy expensive. <laughs> so, um, so I think the whole point is as we look, um, and even when you're talking about doing a radio show, so when you record in ambisonic 3D microphones, one any multi-channel microphones, you now have to stage the acoustics of that recording because now you're recording the room and the people in it and how that works. That's true. another discussion is like we do in, you know, in, 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 uh, uh in any form of multi-channel format, I was thinking of Atmos, is take a mono sound and place it in a 3d environment. And that's, what's really cool with in the gaming world, which I find exciting is that when you've got head tracking, if I turn this way, what's center here becomes the right. So now as you move around, all of the sounds start rotating around you. You have control of it like a studio, which is why when we do music, everybody's on their own track, so you can control it, compress it, really work it. Otherwise, it's just recording bands with one microphone in the middle of the room. You can do it, it just doesn't have the same... Sounds that we used to. That's my short wind version of it.
2: Hmm. That's that's really interesting. Uh, but I will say though, Scott, that first, second, or fourth level, these do a pretty dang good job of uh, of recreating uh, you know just that three d nest. It may not be ambisonic, it, but it gives
4: you a spatial. No. Perspective yeah, on yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. And but I can see what you're saying. How cool would it be for Apple to use the Face ID technology that's in their phone? And for it to be able to translate your head into digital data, which would manipulate the audio for your funeral I mean, so playback.
4: Ways, so, That's I, was actually talking, cool. I was talking to Facebook about it, and it's almost doing what Snapchat's doing. So, Snapchat will automatically take a version of your face and it put graphics on it. They already have the technology. Then I was investigating some, using some version of sonar to be able to ping the ear canal. Hmm. So it puts out a thing, goes back into it, and it can give you a full mapping, detailed map of what your inner ear looks like.
2: Well, I'll tell you, I hope it comes down to the pipe that they could do something that fantastic. But before that, these are pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. right. well, yeah,
4: I think the big thing was right now is nobody quite understands. I think the problem with like what's happening with VR, they need to sell a million of them. Yeah, no, you're right. And everyone's like, the Mo- Dolby all these companies said the moment we can find a way to monetize it. Oh yeah. It's then they're all over it.
2: How about, I'll just tell you, how about the technology that's coming out that they don't like sound is so far behind a lot of the technologies, for instance, LIDAR, right. Which is all coming up. That's going to be the big word that you're going to hear. Wait till they start being able to translate LIDAR data into something useful for the audio world. Like it would make, um, you know, any of the reverbs that much better if they start relying on LIDAR as opposed to relying on the impulses that they're doing right now. If they can get it all working and get all the math figured out.
4: Yeah, and, and essentially that, so in gaming and VR, I've had many conversations because I was doing lectures on this where people go, wouldn't it be able to, great to take a game map and figure out the acoustics based on the mathematics of the map? Yeah. And I said, and here's the reason why it's a bad idea. So like I did Doom, and you see all the metal and all these weird things. Everything will sound like it's coming from a metal tank. It'll be horrible sounding. Right. So think about good rooms. I, what I do is I create illusions. So if I'm in a basketball stadium, and this is my exp- version of it, and somebody's on the other end of the court talking to me like this loud, I have no clue what they're saying. So the whole point of the artistry, there's the physics of capturing acoustics. Right. And then there's the artistry of how do you sound in a creative way to help tell a story or an experience. Right. And while a good show, movie, game, VR, gives you the impression that somebody put a mic out there and captured everything, that's the illusion of what happens from a good recording and a good mix. But but it doesn't happen organically.
2: I, I think you're 100% because there is definitely –
4: unless you're in an orchestra hall that has spent millions of dollars to get the acoustics just right.
2: I think I think you you're right in the fact that there's an artistry of doing sound design and doing the illusion. You're 100%. But think about this. Could you imagine if you had a plug-in, right? And let's, you know, you go to your favorite um convolution reverb or whatever you want. Just whatever it is that you like. And you know how you could pick all your different rooms and all the different impulses that they have of all these great spaces. What if you could have a LIDAR-based reverb where not only could you pick the the Vienna Opera House, but then within the Vienna Opera House, you can pick where in the Vienna Opera
3: House. You can
2: go stage, you can go back, you could go, I mean, you literally could go anywhere because you have this LIDAR data after they scan the room. And then what you could do is you could just like, you know, impulse or anything else, you just filter out the data that you don't want to deal with and you keep the data that you want to keep. I mean, to me, that seems like something that's very doable in the next couple of years. That seems like, why can't reverb be like that?
1: It's the difference between, I mean, an, an impulse response sounds really great. Um, but as you said, that's a photograph in one spot, right? right. What you're talking about is mapping the entire thing and creating a physical model of it, and then having a computer that is has enough horsepower to be able to go right. and do like real-time ray tracing of where you are That's in the, the house, yeah. you know, against all of that stuff, it it can happen. I somebody's got to do it, and yeah, somebody's you know, got to make it sound great, you know. But
4: Mike, there's things you could do right now which they are doing, and that is okay. So, for instance, in a video game, there's things called sound emitters. Now you can make a wall a sound emitter or basically make it into something. So let's say there's a wall of glass and I walk up to the glass. Well, I can change the acoustical reverbs right now and change the reverb into a glassy, a little tonal thing just by walking up to it. I can go left. I can go right. So same thing with a closet. You can make it sound small. Sure. It's all about CPU hits. And as we all know, graphics are king. <laughs> yeah. So if they want to take the the processing real estate and dedicate it to that, which everybody says they want to do at the beginning until they start seeing the graphics hits and the right. performance hits and everyone's starting to do, you know, esports, all that goes away.
2: I think, I think where it'll yeah. happen, Scott, I think it's going to be a plugin that you can put in your DAW and it's going to start there. Then you can create the sound, whatever sound it is. And then, when you incorporate into your movie or you incorporate it into your video game, it's going to be much like any other, any other uh, element that you would use. And, I and, mean, go ahead.
4: Sorry. Sorry. And I'm sorry to keep interrupting. Here's another concept. Make it even better. Forget your dog. Okay. Eventually. I, I can't forget TV my dog. Well, eventually TV people can't keep selling more TVs. I mean, 4k, 8k, we're not, we're barely even doing 4k now. Right. but they're not trying to sell 8 and then 16. They've got to have a reason to sell you a TV every year or two. And they're kind of running out of technology. But let me do this. How about the TV's OEM, PlayStation, or Xbox that are built into the TV rather than buying another set box? So now all of a sudden, every time they come out with a new Xbox yada yada, you're going to buy a new TV because there's going to be advantages. Now, with that said, the Xbox has a giant DSP farm. Well, now all of a sudden, Netflix says, wait a second, I can do some really cool things with that. With all that DSP sitting in your TV, I can start doing things while we're streaming. We can do things on your iPad. We can do sort of things you haven't even dreamed of. Now, all of a sudden, audio gets to do so many cool things because you might just turn your TV on And just listen to music. Yeah. And you got this DSP farm. Now, all of a sudden Atmos is easy. Virtual is easy. You can turn on and off instruments. You can do streams of stems. I mean, there's so many cool potentials. Once you get a DSP farm. It
2: opens up. Hey, I think that's great. We're going to pivot off this, but I will say if anybody wants to develop that, uh, LIDAR reverb, I want to be a beta user, (laughs) a beta tester. (laughs) I mean, Rob, let me ask you before we go, does that even seem like it'd be remotely possible to do with like LiDAR data that's so easy to get now?
0: Oh, it's. I think it's super possible. It's just a lot more math, that's all. But as computers naturally get faster. Someone someone will do that. the The big question is, is it necessary and will it actually sound good? Because, you know, there's still plenty of old reverbs that were just DSP simulations of a space that, that beat a lot of the impulse stuff just because they happen to be sounding good. That, that's uh, true. Oh.
2: You know,
0: I that's- use my
1: PCM 70 over Altiverb all the time, but that's yeah. because I, like Rob said, I love the sound of it. It's just yeah. beautiful.
2: I, I don't think it'll replace any of those. I think it's just going to take it to a different spot because, you know, let's face it, lexicon and the reverbs. And, and I mean, you, you use it for the sound of that, re- for the warmth, for that, you know, for what it sounds like. And it actually sounds better than a lot of the places it says it sounds like, you know. So, you know, it'd be interesting. Brandon, really quick before we go, would you ever use something that kind of technology, you know, for what you do with all the trailer hits and mm-hmm. all the 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 stuff?
3: You know, I mean, it's again, it's like everyone's saying it sounds really cool, but, you know, does it work? Does it sound good? You know, is it useful for what I'm doing? Um right now it's like we're still in the trailer world, we're still in stereo. All the, you know, I'm making music and sound design for my end customer is the video editor, the music MusicZoop, who are listening on, you know, 2.1 setups. Yeah. That's all they got. Nobody has surround sound unless they're a mixer. But none of the trailer editors have that. So my world's... <laughs> I'm still in stereo. Look at that.
2: <laughs> Look at that. Stereo. Come on. Is there anything better than that?
3: Mark
0: <laughs> remote from Lexicon.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's a piece of history, but it still connects to some amazing sounding reverbs. Is that connected to a
1: 480L, Rob? It is.
4: Connected
0: to a 300L mm. a cable that's not quite long enough for me to hold it up to the
4: camera. <laughs> it's, just funny, it's funny that you said that. So I have one of those as well. And I have two versions of the software plugin versions. The UAD. And it's, I hate to say, I'd love having four or five of them available. Yeah, you, wouldn't buy the four,
0: you wouldn't buy four or five of the hardware. They were.
4: Not yeah. at all. And the hardware's a little noisy. The UAD well, version. It was good noise, though. It's good noise.
2: I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna start uh, studying my, my digital uh programming, my digital audio, and I'm gonna work on the uh the lidar reverb. Yeah, you gonna, get right on that. I'm gonna call it a MIDAR. <laughs> uh I think it'll work. I think somewhere someone's gonna be like, yeah, this is gonna work. Anyhow, that's all fun. We're gonna pivot off that. Um I'm gonna bring up something uh really quick that we, we started. Um and I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, Florian Schneider and and craft work and the progression of music that happened because of their existence. And, you know, quite frankly, they're responsible for a ton of stuff. Their sounds and for, you know, music and for the presentation and for the, like they were doing multimedia before people even knew what multimedia was. It was, it was incredible. And, and people would go to their shows and you'd just see those guys standing there and, and it just would get blown away. And, and really, I mean, let's face it the end of the seventies and into the eighties, to me, that was, that era is probably one of the most influential eras in music. You know, you had your hip hops that came from there. You had all the different versions of, of rock and and you had the hair bands of metal, but then you had, you know, in response to that, it, it spawned all the, you know, death metal. And then you got your Nirvanas and you got all that. I mean, they started a ton of this stuff just because they just, took a left turn and went more electronic and and went their own path. And, and I know for me, I remember listening to them when I was younger and it, it just blew my mind of the sounds. And, and I know Nick for you, they were uh, really, Kraftwerk was really influential, right?
1: Super. Absolutely. I, you know, I mean, what can you, what can you say? I, my fo- I'm a very expressive and emotional person and they were under the surface, but they had these personas as robots right and their music was very very much like that but just listen to the sounds just today i've been going back and listening to a bunch of Kraftwerk music over the last 24 hours and the the quality of the sound the quality of the percussion this beautiful edginess to um to the to the computerized robotic voice sounds that they made i mean the music was so beautiful sounding. It was so amazing and, and clear and, and clinical, but in a way that was just so unbelievably musical. And yeah, I mean, as far as I'm concerned, sequencers and, you know, sort of the 80s, a ton of my influence came, came from Kraftwerk. I mean,
2: when you think about what they were doing back then, the one thing that just comes to mind is sync the fact that they can oh. keep all that stuff in sync, sync and tune. Let's face it, tuning was the other thing, right? You do a live show with any of that stuff, and you you turn on those old synths, and tuning was merely a suggestion. That Roll voltage.
1: <laughs> well, and to, to some degree, Mike, you know, I don't want to have this be a history lesson on craft work, but what ended up happening was because they were so frustrated with live performance because they were such perfectionists, they didn't tour for years until the hardware caught up to them. So while they were in their Kling Klang studio and they were, you know, working with all sorts of analog synthesizers and inventing stuff and, you know, creating a lot of stuff that really you could only do in the studio, it was only once laptops came powerful enough that they could actually work with them and sync them together that they were able to come out and start touring and have the music be what it was that they wanted it to be in a live
3: performance. Randy and I actually was fortunate I don't know if any of you guys have seen them live but in I thought it was 2006 but I'm looking online I think it was 2008 in Coachella I caught Kraftwerk I got to see them live it was insane. It was I had I was familiar with a couple of their tracks before then but then I was a fan afterwards they were talk about spatial movement and stuff they were oh there's a bird talk about spatial movement they were running it was in the tent so Coachella was in one of like the dance music tents they were running sound in circles like around like Autobahn was going you know and zipping around the thing and it was just like mind blown it was incredible.
2: That, oh my gosh. You no, know, I never saw them live. I always wanted to. That's, that's incredible. Well, you know, I've been shooting this documentary, so I'm, I'm really into 80s music. And to see how the late 70s, and they were actually one of the bands that kind of drove this whole thing, coming into the early 80s and changing things. And actually, you know, you, you had the, the disco movement that was coming and some of the disco sounds that were being borrowed by some of the stuff that they were doing. And it's just this mash coming across and then it hits the 80s and the 80s, takes all this stuff and you get all the inventions of the technology of the time where MIDI comes out with recallable sounds and you got, you know, Dave Smith with his, uh, with the Prophet Five and and all this stuff that's just, you know, just this avalanche of stuff that comes in there and hits the 80s and then the 80s just spits out all these different fingers, you know, hip hop started in the 80s, you
3: know. Uh, I think it was, uh, Afri- was Africa Bombata who sampled yeah. Kraftwerk a lot, yeah. that's right. that was huge in the hip hop world.
2: Yeah, and it was just, and you had all like it's. It was incredible to see where a lot of this stuff started from. Now, obviously, they weren't the only electronic band at the time that was doing that stuff, but they were. They were the first that really people really thought about, and then they did that like hit, you know that that yeah. made it. And um,
1: there was but, a lot. To, no, I was going to say there was. It's fascinating to see where it is that the Krautrock phenomenon came from, right? So in the late 60s, everything was really psychedelic. And so you had Kraftwerk starting up, Tangerine Dreams starting up, as right. well as Can and Noy. And all of them were very, very improvisationally oriented. I mean, it was like going to an acid trip, right? You know, that was what the music was like. Over time, through the 70s and then into the 80s, as the equipment became... Uh, as it became easier to sequence and as it became easier to be able to sort of mechanically operate these things, both Tangerine Dream and Kraftwerk became more and more and more metronomic, right? With the difference being that Tangerine Dream really kept it, they kept much more of a sort of emotional um, and sheeny, glossy, beautiful bent to their music as they went forward. Whereas Kraftwerk, sorry? Patty, yes, very patty. Exactly, of pads. a lot of arpeggiation and craftwork went the other way, and they always had these pared down, very sparse pieces. You know, with with the lyrics of a craftwork song might be you know five words, right? You know, uh, you know, business, money, numbers, things <laughs> like that. Um, but every little piece of this. Intricate puzzle that they created all meshes together into this thing beautiful. It's so spare and so sparse, but it all works together like this mechanical clockwork kind of masterpiece.
2: I mean, we take we take for granted a lot of the the paths that we can go down now that these guys couldn't go down. Like, could you imagine if they had virtual instruments? You know, just the crazy stuff that they could have done with it and and just the, the sense of experimentation that you get with the giant modular systems like we see that you have there. Like, yeah. that's the thing. I remember being in school, we had a, an EMU modular system. And sometimes I would just patch just to see what would happen. I don't really understand, but what is happens if we go boom to boom to boom? You know, it's kind of like what you can do on a really micro scale um, with Reason. I don't know how many of you guys have Reason out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, sometimes you just want to you just start patching just because you can and you're like okay, let's see what this is and and I got to give props to Reason like they they keep the analog workflow real in the digital world. But um, I just I just what a crazy time for them to kind of be experimenting with this stuff. And people are just like, you got to deal with heat. You got to deal with voltage uh, differences that can totally affect the sound of, of your instrument. You know? I mean, how about the, uh, if you got like really bad power to like uh, the old mini mood, You know and all kinds of crazy stuff that that would do i mean rob i bet some of those old synths that you were doing with when you first started with stevie were just the
4: most temperamental little things The memory moog
0: (laughs) all of them i mean the uh the jupiter 8 and uh you know the old oberheims from those days and and all the arps and moogs from those days yeah i mean everything was temperamental everything would sound different when it would get hotter uh, CS-80, you know, got so hot you couldn't even really sit close to it. Uh, and it would sound different. And and some of the synths, like I remember Stevie had Jupiter 8 serial number 3 or something, mm-hmm. or two. It was something really early. And it was before they'd put in all the uh, digital controlled tuning stuff that I guess eventually made it into it. And I just remember it would be in tune, like we could never get a whole song out of it, like a whole pass of a whole song. You would do a verse then you'd have to let it cool down and, you know, then record another verse <laughs> so crazy but it was that you know it was that magical a sound and I, honestly back then it was kind of fun because you really had to be a pioneer and there was no one else doing it like you know you knew if you were getting these things to work you might be the only person on earth doing it uh, so it felt like much more of a pioneering time as opposed to now when you just open you know a million yeah. plugs on your laptop
2: hey let, let me ask you a question when you um when stevie was working back in the day how did he come up with his sounds? Did you ever have to do any programming for him? Or did he sit there and just mess with the knobs on his own? Or was it a combination oh, it was of both? A
0: combination. It was a combination. I mean, his, his one of his weird abilities, which he has numerous, but one of his weird abilities was if you showed him a synth, like an ARP 2600 or something, and how it had to be patched, he would remember it wow. and could go back and repatch it from memory even years later. I mean, it's kind of freaky. Uh, how he would take to that stuff, but then as time went on, especially as I when I joined him, things were slowly becoming more and more visual.
2: Yeah,
0: you know there were synclaviers and Fairlights and Lynn 9000s, and you know he would learn all the basics that he needed uh, for those devices, but there were a lot of things that you had to be able to see them to do.
2: Well, also I,
0: I ended up in inventing a lot of non-visual layers to go on top of the software instruments for him.
2: Well, well, that's true. You've, I've I've noticed that when I first started, you know, when I first met you and you were telling me about some of the stuff that you're doing, that was that's pretty incredible. What we, were we
0: sequencing with them? Was it Texture or Sequencer parts or one of those?
2: No, wow. so we use <laughs> we used Cubase when we were on the road. I remember Cubase was a was the big thing, and then we also used the um, that big massive uh, uh, digital audio workstation. Right, that, right. Yeah, the wayframe. The, that, those yeah, were the
0: so before, that, before that was Texture, and before that was Sequencer Plus, and before that was the Roland MPS system, which may be the worst sequencer ever created.
3: <laughs>
4: right, but also before Cubase was C-Lab. So <laughs> remember. Yeah, but we C- were
0: never on Atari, though.
4: Yeah, well, yeah, it was Atari. Um, so I, before, when I first started, I was programming synths for Mike Lang, Chris Page, a lot of big studio guys in town, and they would just drop off the synths, jupiter 8s dx7s and then i started working with a company called music data and created massive libraries of synths you know jxap you just you name it you know and i remember it was me and eric Persing, early days oh, wow and um that was before eric was big he was he was programming i was programming for me though i got so tired of okay here's your clavinet, here's your french horns here's your staccato bass here's your and just i would just create massive libraries then I started going, this is cool with lasers. And then I started getting into the sound design on sense, And that's when I got away from all that. But wow. going, at Music Data, we sold C-Lab. So wow. I used to go to NAM showing off C-Lab uh, with a DX7. and uh,
0: What was the main NAM. C-Lab guy's name? He was a character. Which one? The main guy from C-Lab. I'm just trying to blank. Man
4: Song? Uh, Then there was, Lansong was the creator. He created a lot of cool stuff. And then it was Berg, um, Berghoff. Was he? Wasn't that his name? Berghoff? Bergeroff or something like that? Yeah, I'm not sure. I was, I was such a baby. I was so out of school. The Lansong and, um, there's a guy who's writing that was really huge. And he's going to hate me when I forget his name. Uh, Uh, Berger. Um, anyway. Anyways, those two, one was marketing, one was programmer, and I was the schlep, but I would grab all the synthesizers and do it. And the funny part was is we created our own first digital workstation that triggered off a time code, and we had a whole, we probably had like a dozen Akai, I think they were 612s with little floppy disks wow. before the 900, and we built them all up. Lance built the time timecode system on a PC, and I was the clinician. So I was the one showing people how to edit, never edited before in my life.
2: <laughs> that's oh my gosh, that's like a trip down memory lane. Because I remember I remember C Lab and, and then but back in the day, I like I was I was learning on Performer. This is a little bit later, this is in the 80s, and then also opcode, which is you know, opcode yep. always yep. Op-code, opcode. Studio vision. Oh, Studio yeah. Vision was so far ahead of its time. That's mm-hmm. so crazy. So crazy. That's that's incredible. Well, all I, all I know is, you know, going back to Kraftwerk and the early bands from the 70s and the electronic bands and, the, and, you know, the psychedelic scene back even before that where it wasn't even keyboards, it was a lot of guitar sounds and a lot that's of right. tape and a lot of just, I mean, that all spurned all these movements which all led down to you know hitting in the 80s and then man i've been just in 80s school so you see all these different things started and and then the key pieces of gear that really it's always seems to be like a certain piece of gear comes along and then it just kind of just kind of spurns its own little little offshoot and its own little thing because you know let's face it uh hip-hop was born on the Akai MPC, because it had that, that swing and that feel and that vibe, and it's like, you know, if it wasn't for the MPC, uh, I probably still would have been hip-hop. And right?
4: before <laughs> that was, and you had Lindrum, and you had the, the Emu drum.
1: The drumulator.
4: Yeah, the
0: drumulator. Yeah, the
4: SB-12. Em- yeah, that's what I was thinking.
0: Getting, getting back to the history of that period, which is what we were talking about, my challenge with all of that stuff, I mean, it was a perfect time to be starting up in the electronic music business. But uh, every th- all of those things that came out, I always had to imagine what would it be like to use it with your eyes closed? Because that was mm-hmm. my was That's so true. How do you use this stuff? And there were some things, like the drumulator. I mean, there were, there were some things that we figured out how to use kind of just like anybody else would because they were non-visual enough. And then there were other things, especially as software and plugins started to take over that are just not really good for blind people. And it's not just Stevie. I mean, there are zillions of blind musicians out there. Uh, and it's amazing how far they get left behind
2: sometimes. You know, I, as you're saying that, Rob, I have a question for you. Um, how How was the DX7? Because that was such a, a monumental keyboard, but it had all the flat membrane. Um, yeah.
0: Oh, well, buttons. my favorite my favorite Braille story is about the DX7. Well, uh,
2: do, do tell. <laughs> oh, The DX7
0: was a nightmare for blind people because, yeah, it was just like a McDonald's ordering pad. You know, it was just flat membrane switches with no raised and buttons
4: one slider yeah
0: and the first time i mean stevie loved the dx7 more than we wanted him to because he ended up using it to death on everything but uh yeah part-time lovers dx7 and and Lin 9000 and it makes me want to scream when I hear. <laughs> but uh that was his favorite combo for a while but yeah uh the funny story about the dx7 was uh i forget if it was for his birthday or there was some big occasion where we had gotten him a dx7 and we got out, he had those Dymo braille label makers where you would you know, print out braille letters and then you could stick them on the surface. And so we meticulously labeled up every single switch and button oh. on the DX7. And we gave it to him as a gift and he sat down and he was all excited because uh, he had used the DX7, but he had only used it with one of us programming for him. And so he sat down to use it and he started laughing. And we said, well, why are you laughing? And he said, you put all the braille on upside down. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's hilarious. That day, because we ended up brailing a ton of stuff from from that day I always had a cheat sheet so I could look at the braille which is not how you're supposed to read braille but I would always have a visual braille <laughs> so I knew it wasn't upside down
2: you were reading the braille that's awesome
0: <laughs> I can read braille visually I used to also say you know at the braille institute here in LA they have the name in braille in huge letters on the top of the building like who's that for <laughs>
2: Hey, you know, on that story, when you said the Lin 9000, that's like the best looking drum machine ever. The Lin 9000 was such a gorgeous. You want to see one? Oh, yeah. You got to show. You got to show. It's I remember when that came out. Talk so about
4: expensive in the day.
2: Yes, it was so expensive. There's no way in the world I'd ever get one, but. Oh my gosh, it was gorgeous looking. It is the most gorgeous looking drum machine. It just was so sleek. It was, it's almost like you were playing like a high-end sports car. And uh, the, the buttons, the rubber on the buttons, the
4: whole thing. Oh my gosh, I'm excited. You know, I'll say one thing is because I've, I've been really into it. It's kind of a new, rena- uh, not a new renaissance, but in a continued renaissance. So before we always had the LE2As, 1176s and all that. Um, in the world of guitar pedals... They are doing some amazing things. And not only are they using them for guitars, but they're now using them for synths. Right. And they're doing some, I mean, reverb delay combinations. I mean, I got a whole bunch right behind me, right there. Um, And uh, there's some outrageous stuff going on that is equal to plugins easily. And the quality the Strymon stuff, the JHS, this stuff is some really, I mean, they got a little Neve mic pre. Uh, that they've built in to kind of give it a sound. Um, and they're better, they're more tuned for music. Like I've got two sort of inspired 1176 pedals. Sound amazing. But you could do pedals like you want you to combine the dry with the compressed. And that's not something you see as often. Pedals is everywhere. plugins not as much. And outboard gear, not at all. So it's interesting to see how they've taken inspirational technologies from the classics and then even built it. And I'd say, I'm not sure which is now bigger, pedals for guitars or pedals for modular synths, the same pedals. Uh,
2: I, yeah, I, there's so many cool pedals that are coming out. Did you ever see it? I think we, I mentioned it, but did you ever see the, uh, the mini bar uh, at, at Nam where you actually can pour beer into it and it analyzes the liquid and it affects the sound? Yeah so Rob you got it you know what it, I'm, not,
0: I'm not sure where it is so I brought it's uh, it's child
2: okay let's let's look at it's child oh yeah <laughs> yes that is it's child 100% with the original floppy drive oh my gosh oh my goodness
0: I I, I don't know where the Lin 9000 is it's here someplace I'm sure I'll trip over it later.
4: Rob in the hallway in that little cubby. For
1: for there. listeners who are not on on watching on video, Rob brought an a Kai MPC60. That's right. All
0: the original button.
1: MPC.
2: The original and uh, yeah, that was the buttons are actually feel much like the lin 9000 felt. They have that same kind of gummy um,
4: and texture. Now, and on now them. you've got an Alesis. What the fuck is this? Uh, Strike <laughs> MultiPad. Sorry. I used the, uh, the audio F word.
2: Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy, but you know, and all this stuff, let's face it, it all came back from that really wonderful little, little span of the late seventies and into the early eighties and just, just going up there. And, and let me tell you, there was a time there when I was touring that there wasn't a band. And I worked with a lot of R&B bands like Silk and Chai and, and SWV and, uh, you know, Stevie and, and Martin page. And, uh, you know, where they didn't have at least an MPC sixty in their in their arsenal. It was it was that was the touring, um, you know, drum machine, and it held up really well as long as you had a really good case for them. It held up super super well. They held up the uh,
0: the Lin nine thousand on tour was a little like bringing a roulette wheel because <laughs> yeah. you had no idea. Do we win audio tonight?
2: No. <laughs> well, oh, we got audio. It's good. That was kind of the the. The pushback on that though, it was very unreliable, even in the studio. You know, sometimes it booted, sometimes it didn't boot, you know. And then there was that company what was the name of that company that did the modification for it? Uh, oh, Tra- for- Bruce for- yeah, Bruce and his the- brother Ben. Yeah, so he would do the modification, and then after he had that mod, they were pretty rock solid because whatever he did, it actually helped him out a lot. So that was back in the day. Yeah, he when- was a
0: wizard, he actually figured out. How to build a hardware modification that let you add a sampler to a machine that had only had ROM before that. So he added his own sample memory on top of ROM with a series of like switches on the back of the machine and these. It, w- it was so complicated, but it worked. And so you could then sample into a machine that used to only have factory sounds. It was incredible.
2: Yeah, it worked. Well, anyhow, guys, hey, we're going to have to wrap this up, guys. This is really great. This is a really fun conversation from the ambisonic stuff to Rob showing us the MPC. And, and, yeah, uh,
0: I have to find that LIN-9000. I know it's going to like, I'm going to open a closet and it's going to fall on my head. In the well,
2: that's that's the homework for next week, man. I want to see that LIN-9000. That's that's Actually, we
0: should on this podcast, we should each drag out like a piece some of gear. Random year. Since, since, since we're
1: doing
2: video, let's do it next week. Next week, everybody just grab a piece of gear. We'll, we'll, we'll do a little show and tell.
1: Uh, show and tell next year. Gear week. of the week. Oh, this oh, can turn into something. This can be kind of fun. Oh. Uh, it's too bad that we don't have a lot of equipment between us, so that'll yeah. run out really <laughs> soon. <laughs> as,
3: obscure as
2: possible,
0: as obscure as possible.
2: <laughs> oh, uh, I love that. Okay, that's gonna be uh, that'll be interesting. That'll be interesting everybody's thinking right now. Oh no. <laughs> well, Hey, listen, easy. it's it's great. It's been a great conversation. You know what? Sometimes it's good just to talk to the family. We don't always have to have uh, somebody out there, but it always helps. when We have a really nice, good guest. And this is our seventh podcast, man. We're going into week seven and we're, we're going to be weekly until they release the hounds and we can get out. But, uh, I tell you, it's, uh, you know, I'm glad we're doing this podcast. It really lifts me up guys. So thank you for showing up each and every week. And I appreciate that. um, I don't know if anybody wants to say anything that they're working on. Want to plug anything that that they're that they're working on? Um, As of
0: now, I'm working on trying to find a Lin 9000. <laughs> <laughs> I got nothing. <laughs> All right. Not well, <laughs> I've been uh, actually maybe some people feel my pain. I have been wrestling with the Adobe uh, Creative Cloud. Oh, is the most uh, powerful, amazing, infuriating. <laughs>
2: That's okay. You'll work your way through it. And then you know what you're going to do? You're going to work your way out of it. Like most people I know. It's just
0: amazing how powerful it is, but there's always just one thing that just gets you hung up. It reminds me a little bit of the early days of uh, pro tools and stuff where it does like 99% of what you want to do. And you spend a month trying to figure out the last 1% and then finally give up.
2: Well, Well, I'll tell you just as between you and me, uh, like anything on the video side of things, there are, better tools that are out there you know can't you know, so, she resolve
0: yeah no this is on the uh, illustrator illustrator photoshop sketch side of things i mean yeah. sketch is a much cooler program and much newer but i'm having to move a bunch of stuff from illustrator to sketch and it'd be easier to sell a lin 9000 these days
1: <laughs> <laughs> i'll buy your lin 9000 for 10 bucks Rob. on i'll, I'll buy for cash 11. on the barrel head uh, i can't tell it 25. i need
0: Twenty five. I, 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 uh, I uh, uh, hold on to it so I could show it to our podcast. <laughs>
4: uh, 195 masks. <laughs> well, hey, listen,
2: uh, we're wrapping it up. But uh, yeah, uh, as far as myself, I'm going to be uh, I'm putting together and I'll show it hopefully next week. I'm going to put together a super micro ambisonic uh, video system because i think i'm going to do is i think we're going to i'm going to do some of these ambisonic studio tours and we'll just see what happens you know and and just having a conversation with somebody especially if you're listening on air air, you can really visually place that person across from you so i just think it'd be kind of fun to do something like that anyway we uh, just released an episode of spaces nashville and we have some more episodes coming out and um so that's what i've been working on and it's kind of fun and um you know we'll see what happens so um everybody stay safe stay healthy just know that this is not a government conspiracy the coronavirus no. real. we've you know i've lost some friends and lost some acquaintances and and so you know just take everything seriously you know you've got you know err on the side of caution that's all i'm going to say just err on the side of caution all right well for myself and all the guys thank you for listening and we'll catch you next week
0: hang in there joanne Listening to the Audio Nowcast sponsored by API and Wire World Pro Audio. The Audio Nowcast is hosted by Mike Rodriguez and features a panel with Rob Arbutier, Bobby Osinski, Scott Gershon, Nick Peck, Diego Stucco, Brandon Birdside, Martin Page, Bobby Summerfield, and maybe a guest or two. We'll see you next time.